Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Bo List is our guest on the podcast today. Bo is an award-winning director, playwright, and instructor who has worked all over the country and decided to come back home to continue to make art. He has an active role with Kentucky Humanities Chautauqua program, which we will discuss, and an especially interesting story about one of our characters. Welcome, Bo. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, director, uh, instructor, uh, playwright, uh, which one of those do you claim first? It depends on who I'm talking to. So uh, <laughs> since it's you, I'll say that I'm a playwright uh, and, uh, and uh, amateur historian who likes very much uh, digging in the past and uh, uh, finding wonderful characters from Kentucky's uh, archives of history. How does one uh, become a playwright? It's easy. You just uh, sit down and uh, let the voices in your head uh, play themselves out onto the page. Um, There's all kinds of ways of doing it. Sometimes you can just be a good observer of life and write down what you see that's worthy for uh, the the demands of the stage. Um, Sometimes uh, stories occur in your imagination and in your brain that have to escape somehow. But really, it's just anyone who's willing to write down people talking on the page uh, dialogue, uh, narrative, uh, you just, uh, anyone who's willing to do it can be a playwright. Do actors make good playwrights or do playwrights make good actors? There are some good playwrights who are also actors. Uh, there are more actors who are playwrights. Um, if you are an actor, then you are well-versed in how characters talk. You're, uh, you're well-versed in the kind of conflict and dramatic crackling dramatic energy that needs to exist in a story. And it's uh, easier to go the other way than around around uh, the other. But uh, Tracy Letts, who wrote uh, August Osage County and Superior Donuts, which Athens West Theater Company has done, uh, is a marvelous actor. Uh, and you'll see him popping up in movies every now and then from uh, The Lovers to Little Women. Um, uh, I, Sam Shepard was a marvelous actor and playwright. There's not a whole, whole lot that spring to mind that are playwrights first and actors second, but the other way around goes, goes a lot. What's the difference in uh, a playwright and a director? What, what does, uh, what's the director's role? Sure. Uh, the director is an interpreter. Uh, the playwright tells the story and the director decides how it's told. Uh, and that can be through uh, the lens of design, how a thing looks. It can be in tone or tempo or how loud a thing should feel. Um, uh, the way space is used. Uh, I think that's the, the best way I know how to say it. Uh, it's a, it, the, the conductor doesn't design the train. The conductor makes sure they run on time and how fast they go. Uh, that's one of the roles of the director. Do, the play, do playwrights sometimes object to the interpretation that the director might uh, put on their work? Oh, Yes. Oh, I, I, I've written an adaptation of Frankenstein that's been done many times. It's the only thing I've had that's been published. Uh, and every time I've seen it, there has been at least one moment 
uh, where I've, I've just thought, oh no, oh no. Uh, even, even if there are many wonderful moments, I have two productions coming up uh, in the fall. One's in uh, Missouri and the other one's in North Carolina. And even though I'm grateful that it's being done, uh, there's also a sense of dread of that moment of thinking, oh no, they got it wrong. Uh, and it also uh, having to have the humility of knowing that maybe they didn't get wrong at all. Uh, and maybe in just that moment, just that line, just that scene, I'm a fool. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about those, uh, those two uh, works. Um, but I, I want you to tell us a little bit about um, uh, the work that you've done over um, many years, traveling, uh, you, you in your bio list, uh, going north, south, east, and west, um, all, all confined within a, a day's drive, maybe, uh, uh, in some cases, a long day's drive, a long dra- a day's drive into the night. Um, or, or, but, but tell us about your, your career and, and uh, how you you ended up in these uh, various locations like uh, California and, and Chicago. Just uh, talk about your talk about your life in theater. Sure. Uh, it all goes back to uh, being shy as a young person. And someone, a friend recommended uh, as I got into college, because I had never done theater in high school, as most people do if they end up in it. Uh, a friend had suggested that I should try an acting class, that maybe that would help me not be so shy anymore. And I said, uh, what do you do in an acting class? He said, oh, well, the other day we uh, acted like animals. And the day before that, uh, we uh, sizzled like bacon on the floor. And I thought, well, I could act like an animal or sizzle like bacon. And so I signed up for an acting class, which led to an audition, which led to being in a play. And uh, eventually I wandered into a playwriting class. uh, And while I didn't always feel at home on the stage, I felt very much at home sitting in an audience uh, of people watching something that I had written. And so that kind of immediately veered me toward in the direction of directing and writing where I can disappear in the audience and let other let the spotlight shine in others. I like to be near the spotlight. I don't like to be underneath the spotlight. And the um, tell me about some of the experiences that you had in these various locations where you spent some time and and were you uh, were you learning um, from others? Uh, were, were you directing? Were you in charge? Just talk about your, your career and how all of that sort of melds together. Sure. Um, after my undergraduate education at the University of Kentucky in their Department of Theater and Dance, I went off to the University of Memphis for grad school where I got my master's degree in directing. Uh, during that time, I had an internship for a th- with a theater in Chicago and uh, Uh, I liked them so much and they liked me so much that they created a job for me once my internship and my degree was over. So I moved up there for a while and uh, helped run a place called Bailiwick Repertory, which did a lot of new plays and where I got some experience in observing the relationship between directors and writers, how plays go from rough drafts to final drafts to something that's worthy for the stage, sometimes to great effect, sometimes to miserable effect. Uh, I got to see it all and I'm grateful for... (laughs) I'm grateful for the garbage and I'm grateful (laughs) for the wonderful stuff too. Um, After Chicago, I, I, I tried to be a freelancer and go from job to job and gig to gig, which is very difficult. Uh, But one of those gigs was at California state university at Chico uh, where they needed a director for Disney's beauty and the beast. And I directed a, I think mostly unsuccessful production of that play. Uh, Why do you say that? Uh, there's a, a lot of factors. Largely, uh, I'm primarily a, a what they call a straight play director, a, a non-musical play director. And I mm. was 
relatively new to the game and they, uh, their resources were thin and their ambitions were big. And I came in late to the process and was largely on my own in a lot of ways. Um, and everyone's best intentions were not enough to make it excellent and uh, better luck next time, as they mm. say. Mm-hmm. And uh, from California, where? Oh, uh, California, uh, up to upstate New York in Poughkeepsie, where I helped run a theater for a time um, uh, called River Valley Rep, which doesn't exist anymore. One of maybe two or three theaters I've worked for that don't exist anymore. Uh, um, and then uh, back home, back here to, to, to Lexington, Kentucky. The theater, uh, I'm going to call it business, uh, community theater, uh, regional repertory um, has had a pretty tough go of it the last couple of years, primarily because of the of the pandemic, I'm sure. sure. But even before that, I, I just happened to be familiar with uh, the Horse Cave Theater, where uh, I saw wonderful theater there for a brief time that I was uh, uh, near there and could get there and uh, thought it was marvelous. It had great community support. Um, Warren Hammock, I think, was the uh, was the director. Did, did, did you ever meet him or know him? Uh, Warren Hammock was was the um, director of the theater and an actor, too. Um, and uh, I, I had uh, talked with him some about about his life. And uh, but it seems like that that small community theater. Well, I shouldn't just say small, uh, even even larger regional uh, theater. Sometimes uh, it's a struggle, is it not? It's a big struggle. Um, every theater must remain relevant if it's to continue to exist. And every theater must have a relationship with its audience where the audience feels as though the theater is essential to how they live. And uh, appetites can easily change. I'm working right now on a, an outdoor theater project. And that's a, a phenomenon that has changed over time. And lots of those theaters have come and gone. Uh, some very strong ones remain and others that were quite good have disappeared because the tastes of the audience has changed over time. Uh, once upon a time, there was no television, there were no films, uh, there was only live performance. And now there are so many options that uh, in order to survive, you have to distinguish yourself particularly and make the most of your resources. And a, a wonderfully worthy enterprise like Horse Cave Theater uh, might go away just because the taste of the audience has shifted away from uh, traveling to not quite in the middle of nowhere, but very close to nowhere uh, to see great theater. Nowhere is right around the corner. Right around the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, same neighborhood. Have you met the two um, performers and um, uh, enthusiasts who are in Pikeville now? Uh, that are operating a, a small theater there, and I only say that because I just met them within the last couple of weeks. Uh, but I found them uh, quite intriguing. Uh, we sort of stumbled onto them when we had some uh, grant um, dollars from the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, and they applied and, and received a small grant from Kentucky Humanities. Um, both their husband and wife uh, both have acted. Uh, they're from New York, and you think, wow, and they took a chance Almost sight unseen. In fact, uh, the the male part of the of, of the couple uh, took it on his w wife's word that um, uh, Pikeville was a, a place to 
to rediscover ourselves and our talent. And, and they're doing some really cool things there. And I, I would imagine for them, uh, it's, it's a, a lot different from New York and a, a lot different from the theater that they've practiced. They, they've both been uh, teachers, uh, professors for, for uh, uh, Pikeville's uh, a little bit bigger than horse cave, but uh, not, not much. Uh, so um, you're, you, you mentioned your, uh, looking into an outdoor uh, setting for something is that uh, and we don't have to reveal a lot about that but is that something that you're doing here in Kentucky or 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 in the Lexington area it's here in Kentucky and I'm happy to talk to you about it because it's uh, huh? it shares some DNA with the kind of work that we do together mm-hmm. um, I'm working with uh, the city of Corbin Kentucky oh. to to create a summer long annual outdoor production uh, about the life of Kentucky's mo- very most famous citizen, mm. uh, Colonel Harlan Sanders. <laughs> you had me there. Everyone wants to say, oh, but another story about Daniel Boone. Uh, nope. Really? That, that's it. Well, uh, uh, tell us why, uh, why Corbin, why Colonel Sanders and, and why this outdoor theater? Sure. Um, it was an idea I had about 15 years ago. Um, as I was sitting in a Kentucky fried chicken, uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I was between opportunities and, um, trying to figure out if I wanted a daily day-to-day job or wanted to continue to freelance. And I looked at that face on the side of my chicken box. And I just thought, I wonder if, I wonder if he has a, an interesting story behind him as a cartoon. I, I think as a child, I went to a, like a car wash opening or something. And I think he was there or perhaps an impersonator. <laughs> so I knew he was a real person, but that's about all I knew. Uh, and the more I learned about him, the more I learned he had a, a fascinating life, a, a distinctly Kentucky success story that I thought would be perfect for not only a play, but, uh, some, uh, but a musical larger than life and larger even than a theater could contain. It should be outdoors. Uh, much like the Stephen Foster story, or um, there are a lot of uh, h- wonderful historical dramas, Horn in the West, uh, Unto These Hills, um, the, and the one, the big one out in the, in Virginia escapes me. Uh, yeah. It'll, it'll come to me and I'll interrupt. Right. When it does. Um, shoot. Anyway. Um, so I just called the city of Corbin one day. Uh, I called city hall and I said, hi, um, my name's Bo List. I'm a playwright in Lexington, Kentucky. And who would I talk to if I was interested in writing a, a large scale outdoor summer theater production based on the life of Colonel Sanders? And the poor guy on the other end of the phone, he said, well, if it's a musical, you need to talk to Betty. She runs the piano store. And if it's musical <laughs> in this town, Betty knows all about it. <laughs> and uh, I called Betty at the at Gibson's piano store in Corbin, Kentucky, and uh, she couldn't have been nicer and was She'd known the Colonel when she was a child uh, and she connected me to this person and that person. It became a thing. Uh, Congressman Hal Rogers, uh, 15 years ago, uh, gave it a $20,000 grant for a feasibility study from the Institute of Outdoor Drama. Uh, And uh, the conclusion was, yes, you should do this. It will be very successful. But one thing, several reasons, uh, it just kind of went away for a while. And in the last six months, uh, the city's interested in doing it again. Uh, they just approved a big uh, budget line item to start the development process, and they're in talks with Kentucky Fried Chicken to make sure that we're, we steer clear of any copyright uh, I- infringements, and we can work together. 
Well, that's marvelous. That's uh, Corbin is uh, one of those uh, uh, smaller places in Kentucky that uh, seems to be on the uh, up and up. A lot of things happening down there. I've heard um, marvelous things about the downtown area and how they're uh, revitalizing it. And uh, uh, they do, they're doing some interesting things with uh, breweries and, and coffee shops and, and that sort of thing. Have you, have, do you have an outdoor space uh, located yet? That has that on the long list of things that need to be determined. That is one of them. Mm-hmm. But Corbin is full of wonderful, beautiful outdoor uh uh, possibilities. Mm-hmm. And they have a, uh, large indoor convention center that they are interested in perhaps being the, the site, but, uh, nothing's been decided yet. Have you written the, the play? Not, not a bit. I have some uh, early sketches, uh, but we need to, I'm not a person who likes to waste time. So, uh, if they're interested in this happening, we'll make it happen. And if it's not going to work out, it's not going to work out. Uh, but you have um, decided that it is going to be a musical. Oh yes, yeah. There, there has to Bill. There has to be dancing chickens. <laughs> and that wouldn't, um, wouldn't make sense if it's not a musical. But now, Bill. And now, what will it? Uh, I'm, I'm uh, maybe asking too many questions. Uh, um, okay. As usual, um, is it um, is it the story of his life? Is it the st- uh, the the story of the secret uh, recipe? Uh, is there a, uh, a protagonist, uh, uh, other than the Colonel? Is there a, a female lead that you see, uh, uh, Claudia, is she, she's going to be in it too? Uh, she, she, she'd be in it. Um, you know, there are a lot of wonderful characters in his life. And in some ways, the story of his life is the story of Corbin, Kentucky. And it's the story of, of the Kentucky spirit, uh, former governor, John Y. Brown, uh, plays an interesting role in the Colonel's success. Uh, the colonel had a very colorful young daughter who was married many times and was a bit of an adventurer and an artist and a performer and all mm. kinds of things. And he was married twice. He was married uh, to his first wife for 40 years and his second wife for 30 years. Wow. So there are, there are two unusual romances in, in his life and both are good fodder for excellent drama. Well, I was going to say that, uh, his life story had to somehow include Governor Brown, uh, who is still very much alive and uh, could probably, I'm sure you've, have you, have you talked to him about the possibility that uh, you're going to take the Colonel on stage? I, my people have reached out to his people and I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what his level of interest is. I know he's, I know he was, he got a lot, he was very successful early on with that collaboration. And I know he's moved on to many other successful collaborations. Well, he'll be a um, a big supporter of this. I can just almost guarantee that. I'm talking to Bo List, uh, who is uh, connected to Kentucky Humanities in uh, a number of ways, and we're going to talk about that next. Uh, uh, Bo is um, a, a playwright and a uh, director, and uh, uh, he's an instructor and has been in Lexington for some time, although he's traveled the world. And uh, there is a, uh, a kinship with one of our, uh, maybe maybe a, I'm not going to, I'll let Bo tell us if it's a closer kinship with one of our performers uh, in Kentucky Chautauqua than um, the others, but we'll uh, do all of that right after we hear from uh, our good friends at Spalding University. Spalding University's affordable, nationally distinguished low residency MFA in writing 
offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration, explore across genres, and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one -on -one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Bo, you said that you, um, and I can detect in your description of knowing a, a, a lot about Colonel Sanders, maybe more than uh, most people. Uh, and you said earlier that you are an amateur, I think, uh, historian. Um, tell me about the interest that you have in history. When did that develop and, and how you apply your, your theater uh, and your art to history? Sure. Um, like many things in life, I, I work from the outside in. Um, I'm a theater teacher at Sarah School, and I did not start out teaching. I started doing theater and then learned to teach as I went along. Likewise, with the Chautauqua program, I'm a theater person first who has wandered into a love of history through uh, the activity of, of writing for your program. Um, it started with uh, knowing that you were having a call for new characters back in 2012, 2013. And I, I felt like I had the perfect Mary Todd Lincoln in the form of a, a, a Trish Clark, who's a marvelous actor here in town. Um, and I, I told her all the reasons why she'd be perfect for it. Uh, none of which are particularly flattering to a, a person, but uh, she understood that uh, even though Mary Todd Lincoln was not a glamorous character, that she was a very interesting one. So we worked together and came up with an audition as per the instructions and uh, she was accepted. And then we had the, and then uh, the daunting, but, and humbling and fun and uh, dizzying process of, of writing the thing. So, uh, while I first started out in another moment of what am I doing with my life? I, I need to stay busy. Um, I need to find opportunities. Uh, it's, and it's always feast or famine. Uh, through the process of creating a good theater piece, uh, I learned a great deal of love for the history behind Mary Todd Lincoln, not just the fun stuff that would uh, wow an audience, but uh, her life. I, a great deal, I had a great deal of feeling for her loss and her grief and the, the sadness she, she felt and the, the greatness that she knew, not only by being married to a great man, but having a great deal of uh, great intellect of her own, uh, of her own right. Um, and I was kind of hooked. I, I wanted to know more about, about some of the, the great Kentucky characters. Um, and so when I went on to, to work with the, the characters of Jefferson Davis and Daniel Boone with the marvelous actor, Kevin Hardesty, um, I stopped thinking about it just in terms of what an audience's reaction would be or the big dramatic moments and more about making sure that the history was told correctly, making sure that the full measure of, the, of these men and women uh, were revealed to the audience. There's a great deal of responsibility because this will be uh, for some, the first real glimpse people have into these characters by virtue of them being in, in schools and uh, being shown before students. And perhaps for some of them, it will be the last thorough examination uh, that they'll have. 
and they'll think that uh, some, some of them will be encouraged to go on and study more. And for others, this will be their taste of that character. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be the real thing. It needs to be who they were. Uh, for me, it's very important how they would have spoken, their language, uh, how they communicate. Um, and uh, along with that, uh, by exploring the wisdom and the wit of these great Kentuckians, I get to steal some of that for myself. I get to learn a, a, a bit of, I get to live vicariously a bit through Daniel Boone's great adventuresome exploits. And even though Jefferson Davis was, was uh, not a hero by any uh, contemporary standard, uh, he, he had an eloquence that I uh, admire. And by understanding how misguided a person could be about, the, about issues of the day, great and small, mm -hmm. it puts into better perspective for me that which has survived from that unfortunate chapter of history and why people continue to believe some of the things that they believe, mm -hmm. um, which I, which it's easy to, uh, it's easy to uh, make issues entirely uh, for lack of a better word, black and white. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the people who, uh, who do not survive favorably in the, in the history books uh, existed in a great gray area. And over time, we understand we can see things more clearly. Uh, it it's been a it's been rewarding to be able to understand what's going on today through the lens of what happened 150 years ago, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, you had uh, so much to do with uh, developing uh, Mary Todd Lincoln and and Daniel Boone and Jefferson Davis. Um, Henry Clay, uh, as uh, a, a lot of people uh, that follow Kentucky humanities and. Uh, for many, many years, I don't know how many, but uh, decades, uh, George McGee of Georgetown uh, College, uh, wonderful uh, human being and a perfect gentleman, uh, portrayed um, Henry Clay and, and loved doing it and, and, and entertained, and I say that, and educated, entertained and educated uh, throngs of children and uh, adults all across um, the state and, and in Washington, D.C., too. He was there uh, as a, an, an invite of, of congressional members to, um, to make his appearance. Uh, I, I myself took him um, uh, to our National Humanities Day on the Hill. Uh, he was there in his period dress and was uh, he's always a hit uh, wherever he goes. But George retired. And then the aforementioned Kevin Hardesty, a wonderful actor, uh, is taking on the role now of, of Henry Clay. Did you work with George McGee? No. So, so working with Kevin and, and sort of uh, taking Henry Clay, the, the man, the character, uh, and then uh, bridging that gap from a, a George McGee to a, a Kevin Hardesty who had played Daniel Boone and, and, uh, and Jefferson Davis. What, what kind of task was that for you? Was that a, a whole new learning experience? Was that something that was challenging to you? Sure. Um, as I will tell anyone who will listen and even those who will not, uh, Henry Clay is uh, my great, 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 great grandfather. Ah, uh, so there is. I don't think I knew that. Oh my goodness. Yes. No, I didn't know that. Now, Wonderful. We, we all have 64 great, 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 great grandfathers. So the odds of one of them being distinguished or famous is pretty good. Yeah. Um, so uh, my, 
throughout my life, our family has held Henry Clay in a great deal of reverence. Uh, and a, it has been a source of great family pride to have that lineage. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, the biggest challenge was moving beyond the sense of family pride and uh, getting at the heart of, of who he really was, warts and all. And uh, there are a lot of warts. Um, his, uh, his views on slavery were by today's standard uh, abhorrent and by that day's standard uh, very controversial. So to accept, to accept uh, a lineage to someone uh, who by today's standards uh, would be one of the bad guys in a, uh, in a story um, uh, took some, was, it was a humbling experience, uh, but I also had to write the character from his point of view as he would describe himself. And that uh, can sometimes be lots of fun. Like when he's talking about his duel, uh, uh, of which he had more than one, uh, as he talked about courting his wife, Lucretia, uh, is a lot of fun. And when he's talking about his views on, on race or slavery or some political issues, it can, there can be a, a sense of pain to that. So the act of empathy, the, the, the act of uh, writing as a source of empathy uh, for me is very important. If I don't understand how these characters tick or what motivates them, I don't feel like I'm any good. And if I really get under their skin and try to see the world or feel the world as they did, uh, it can hurt a little bit. Uh, one of the great losses of his life was his daughter, Anne, who was my great, 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 great grandmother. Uh, and here, reading his words as he described hearing of the news of her passing, uh, I, I got choked up. I got emotional. I, I never met her. She's several generations removed from anyone I would have met. Uh, but I had a love for her and his specific, unique relationship with her as not a favorite child, because nobody's supposed to have favorite children, uh, but, but she was his favorite. And uh, I, I felt great pride in that. I felt more pride in that than any of his accomplishments uh, as, a, as an orator or as a legislative technician uh, was the, his great heart and how he loved people. Um, anyway, I, I just... That's how I forged an emotional connection, and that's how I found my way in. It mm-hmm. wasn't through the compromises. It wasn't through uh, his feats on the floor of the Senate. Uh, it was his love of his wife and his love of his mm-hmm. daughter. Mm-hmm. And if there is a unique story um, in America, um, and certainly in Kentucky and, and at Kentucky Humanities Chautauqua Program, it's the story of Nancy Green and who she is. and and But I think... It's uh, as Paul Harvey used to say, it's the rest of the story that you are really responsible for. I mean, I think it would have been uh, maybe uh, somewhat um, a task if someone had learned that she was uh, that that uh, the Aunt Jemima. And I'll let you uh, fill in the blanks for those who haven't seen the performance or don't know of the story. But if they learned that there was an Aunt Jemima who came from Kentucky, it would have been easy. well, easy is not the right word. It would have been um, a different story if they had written it uh, without the background that that you learned and discovered. And the uh, again, the emotional, I think, uh, tie that you you developed with the family. So tell us the story of of Nancy Green. Sure. Um, well, I'll start with Aunt Jemima. Uh, much like with the Colonel and wondering about the Colonel, was that a real person? I wondered if Aunt Jemima was a real person and she was not. Uh, 
the character of Aunt Jemima was a, a minstrel song character. They would sing a, a song called Aunt Jemima, and it was a, a very broad and unfavorable stereotype of how uh, those performers viewed Black women at the time. Um, so uh, a, uh, an entrepreneur in Chicago was uh, starting a flower company um, and wanted uh, a spokesperson who could not only cook, but also charismatically tell stories and engage audiences because he was going to debut the product at the World's Fair in 1893. And a friend of his said, well, you should come over to my house one day because we've got a woman who works in the kitchen who will just spin you a yarn and make the best pancakes you ever had. And he went by and paid a visit and just uh, was utterly charmed by this woman who had, was working in his kitchen. Her name was Nancy Green. She had been uh, born uh, in Montgomery County, Kentucky, not far from Mount Sterling. Um, and when, after the, the slaves were freed after uh, the Civil War, she had uh, taken up residence and employment with the, the Walker family, uh, the very prominent business people who moved up to Chicago right after the Great Fire. And um, he offered her a job and she accepted and made her debut in a giant uh, a flower barrel uh, on the grounds of the World Fair in Chicago and was so popular and was so widely enjoyed that they had to hire uh, a contingent of police to keep the crowds in line as she told her stories and made pancakes. Uh, she won a medal from the fair for uh, her, her sense of entrepreneurship and was offered a lifetime contract to continue to be the character of Aunt Jemima who had been chosen to remind customers of their, their, uh, the stereotypical mammy character. Uh, many families for generations were of, of white children were raised by black women um, who cooked and cleaned and kept the house. My, my father uh, had a woman that he referred to as aunt, and I don't remember her, her, what she was called, but that's just how things worked in Kentucky as, as recently as the 50s and 60s. So uh, Nancy Green went on to a lifetime of promoting that, uh, that company. She was one of Chicago's first affluent African-American women. Uh, she uh, went on, uh, she did mission work and contributed to her church and helped lift uh, people in her neighborhood out of poverty. She lived in a neighborhood called the Bronzeville section of Chicago. And uh, she lived to a ripe old age and, and passed away when she was struck by a drunk driver in a car. Mm. Um, and largely she was unknown as the person behind Aunt Jemima. It came as quite a surprise when people realized that that character who had been seen traveling the, the country in the, in, in, had, a, had an identity that wasn't Aunt Jemima. And you do such a marvelous job with um, the, the script and the direction that you've uh, uh, given and, and collaborated with Deborah Falk, um, who is a uh, Lexington um, actress, uh, uh, been uh, in California on stage and in, in clubs, uh, comedy clubs, and has come back home uh, to Kentucky and just does a, a wonderful job. She's now representing uh, the arts um, as a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as a council, uh, Metro Council um, appointed position. And uh, she's quite active in, in so many uh, different things. And she, um, if you have not seen her uh, in our Chautauqua, uh, performance, um, she, you, you need to do that. But 
But Bo, you are also responsible for a lot of the research, and 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 then here here comes the history uh, part of you and your life, um, in really finding out a little bit more about Nancy Green after she passed away, and and where she where she ended up, and that that story took you uh, again to Chicago. Tell us about that, and and. Uh, how did how did that first uh, what was the genesis of of thinking well now I'm going to go and and seek out uh, a little bit more of Nancy Green sure um as i said before one of the really rewarding things about working with the Chautauqua program is is forging a personal connection with the subject um with henry clay it's easy he was a, he's a blood relative from a long time ago um mary todd lincoln i was able to uh uh, really feel for her and her and her many losses and 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 occasionally a sense of of madness. Uh, she was uh, mentally uh, unhinged at times, and I've had those days myself. Um, Nancy Green, however, uh, her experience is very far removed from myself. So it was wonderful to have uh, two great collaborators, Deborah Falk, who was is is as charismatic and colorful a personality as Nancy Green must have been. And Dr. Alistine Turley, who is our project historian, uh, as, as, a, as a white male author, there's only so far I could go in uh, uncovering who that woman was uh, and her accomplishments and what she, how she would have sounded and how she would have talked. So I had two marvelous collaborators. Uh, that said, I had in my research, of which there's, there's not much about her, uh, Henry Clay wrote extensively letters, uh, speeches, et cetera, and many of them survive. So figuring out who he was and what he sounded like was easy uh, by comparison. Uh, there's very little on Nancy Green and there are many, many uncertainties about her life and uh, very few accounts of what she was like when she wasn't Aunt Jemima. So we had to speculate a great deal and piece together what we knew. Um, in doing that research, I found that uh, she had uh, been buried in a, an unmarked grave in uh, Bronzeville and that the grave had been had disappeared, that uh, nobody knew where it was. And on a visit to Chicago, uh, I decided I wanted to go to that cemetery and just absorb the the, the Nancy Greenness of it, if, and and if, and if I could. And uh, so I went and I, I asked whereabouts she might be, and a woman at the office told me what section she had last been seen in, as it were, but it had been years and years since anybody knew exactly where it was. And uh, they sent a, uh, an attendant with me, a man named Duck. Uh, so Duck and I went over to the corner of the cemetery where she had last been seen. And most of the unmarked graves, there were, there were these little, maybe baseball-sized stones, and they had numbers on them. Uh, and that's, so she, she was in one of those. And I knew what the number was, uh, but it had overgrown and there were, it was dirt and leaves. And, but I wanted to find her if I could. And Duck was there with a shovel and they had given me an American flag. They said, if you find her, you can put an American flag there. And I said, great. But I used the stick of the American flag to just kind of poke and dig. And uh, Duck was willing and we poked and dug and dug and poked. And after a while, one of us hit something and I was so excited. I, I, I knew it was it. But it wasn't. Uh, it was some other number, and we just said all shucks. But we figured out by that number, we thought, wait, if, if this number is here and that number is over there, then maybe. And then we figured out where we could look. And 
about 45 minutes in one at, I mean, literally I, I stuck that American flag in the ground, hit a rock, dug, dug it. And sure enough, it was, it was her, it was her number. Uh, so I'm delighted with the, the symbolism of like the American flag itself being the thing that, that uh, locates her, her grave. Uh, there's a, the Bronzeville Historical Society since that incident, uh, they, they had been for years trying to create a, a headstone for her. They wouldn't have known where to put it, uh, but they would have put it somewhere uh, to acknowledge her and her contributions. And uh, last year, uh, this was during the, during the pandemic, they arranged an event outdoors and they finally got raised the money and got the approvals they needed to, to make sure that she wasn't forgotten there. Well, that's a, that's a marvelous story. And that's uh, the rest of the story um, of, of Nancy Green. Uh, Bo, what um, you, you've done uh, probably uh, the characters that any Kentucky historian would say are uh, the most prominent uh, in our history. There's always uh, another one or two, and you've done, uh, of course, Nancy Green, who wasn't that well known. If you if you had your choice of um, of another character that you would like to develop uh, that you just have an interest in, whether it's familiar or whether it's someone undiscovered, uh, who would that be as we close out? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I imagine that the, the great white whale would have to be Abraham Lincoln uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the size and scope and scale of his story. It, it's almost so big that I it's, it's hard to imagine getting your mind all the way around his intellect, his accomplishments, his legacy. Um, uh, Henry Clay's uh, granddaughter, Josephine Clay, was a, uh, a writer and a prominent horsewoman. Uh, and, and a spirited uh, minor figure in American history, uh, but would be a fascinating subject. Not well enough to justify a Chautauqua character, I don't think. Uh, I also think it'd be lovely to, to uh, bring Duncan Hines to the stage. Uh, uh, just as uh, lots of Nancy Green's story is a bit of a comedy, I, Duncan Hines would be a great cooking show. Uh, <laughs> it would be. It would. Uh, there. there the, the great thing is there are there is no shortage of wonderful, colorful characters from Kentucky that have been written about and have not been written about. So the there's a great, great many characters to come in the future, and I hope I can be part of at least one of them. Well, some people are aware of the fact that we've been doing a segment called Think History on WEKU Radio and now down at WKMS Radio in, in Murray for uh, about uh, two and a half, uh, going on three years now. And we do a history segment every every day, five days a week. We haven't repeated one yet that I know of. And I, I just read them. Um, someone else does the research and um, uh, the editing. And uh, But my goodness gracious, in this very room where we're doing the podcast, I record those. And I am truly, uh, honestly, humbly amazed at times of the characters that are in Kentucky history, many of them uh, African-American um, heroes of their time, uh, of great significance um, uh, in, in their own right. And uh, I, I'm going to say that some of those characters that we have uh, stumbled on and, and written about, that our scholar and historian has written about, uh, would make marvelous uh, Chautauqua uh, characters. So. Uh, maybe there's uh, one of those we can steer your way and uh, and gain your interest uh, on someone that we need to bring to life that a lot more people need to know so much more about. Well, I listen to that program and I marvel at lots of the wonderful nuggets that 
we may not have uh, learned about in the history books, but nonetheless spring to life when someone's research is combined with uh, the desire to tell the stories. Uh, and I'll, I'll keep a sharp ear open. Uh, Bo List is uh, our guest today, uh, award-winning uh, director, playwright, and instructor, and uh, a collaborator, but more than that, uh, with uh, us at Kentucky Humanities with our Chautauqua program. We wish you the best. We look forward to uh, to being in the audience when, uh, when Colonel Harlan Sanders makes his uh, debut down in Corbin. Thank you. Well, I'll look forward to seeing you in the audience with me. Thanks, Bo. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.